This episode of Health Gig is part of the Evolution series powered by Paragon. We are working with Paragon Performance Evolution to bring you a special series of incredible speakers which have been hand-selected from their network to be our guests on Health Gig. Paragon works with companies to bring in authors and thought leaders who can help implement hands-on programs which focus on transformation, integration, and greater awareness. They blend the best of modern science, human behavior, and timeless wisdom into all of their programs, which is why we are so supportive of the work they are doing in this world. We are thrilled to be collaborating with Paragon Performance Evolution for this very special series and so happy to bring these conversations to you. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Molly Bloom is our guest today, and she's here to talk to us about her extraordinary life. She is best known for her memoir, Molly's Game, which was adapted into an award-winning film of the same name by Aaron Sorkin. Bloom's memoir chronicles her journey from world-class skier to college student to L.A. waitress to building and operating the largest and most notorious private poker game in the world. Her games featured hundreds of millions of dollars, and players like Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, A-Rod, and Ben Affleck. But eventually, her life came crashing down, and it's the lessons she learned and how she's living her life today that will encourage and amaze you. Thanks, Molly, for joining us. Welcome, Molly. Thank you so much. We're so happy you're with us today. And telling your amazing story, your messy story, has become sort of the solution or was at one point the solution that you created to move on. But for our listeners who might need to be reminded about your story, would you mind taking us through your life a little bit here first? It started out very normally. I was born in this quaint little town called Loveland, Colorado. You know, I come from a family, we were very close growing up and there was a lot of emphasis on athletics and there was a lot of emphasis on academics. We went up skiing every weekend. My family loved mogul skiing more than anything. And my brothers and I started competing locally and doing quite well. And then around 12 years old, I got some pretty bad news. And that news was that I had very severe juvenile scoliosis. I was a mogul skier. So impact, it's the necessity of the sport. And the doctors told me that they were going to have to basically reconstruct my spine and fuse the top 11 vertebrae together to form this solid bone and then put two metal rods in it. And, you know, that was kind of the easy part. The hard part was the next year asking a 12 year old to sit still and not move. And I talk about this period in my life a lot because this was the dark ages before Netflix (laughs) and social media (laughs) and, you know, all these things that we use to babysit ourselves. And so it was kind of me and my thoughts. I knew in my heart that I wanted to ski again. The doctors, my coaches, my parents all said, no, that's not on the table for you. But it was during this year when confronted with myself and my own sort of thought life that I think I started to develop a really steely mindset. And I started to recognize that the thoughts that are kind of going on in my mind aren't necessarily my friends. They're not necessarily my ally. (laughs) And I started this practice as a young girl, not knowing that it was a practice, but this practice of managing my mindset and starting to sort of 
re-narrate what was happening. And then I strongly attribute that learning to what happened over the next eight years, which was I got back on the snow. I made the U.S. ski team at 19 years old. I became ranked third overall in North America at 20, and I made it all the way to the Olympic qualifiers at 21. This type of re-narrating of the mindset is something that's available to all of us and is just such a profound tool. Oh, the Olympic qualifiers didn't go as I wanted, unfortunately. I literally tripped on a stick. (laughs) I skied over this tiny piece of pine bow and my ski pre-released 20 feet in the air. And I fell really hard on my, you know, already pretty fragile spine. I had to really kind of get honest whether I had another four years in me, how my body was really feeling because it was a lot of pain, you know? And so I decided to retire. Like I said, school was also a very important part of our life. And I was at the University of Colorado. I had a very good GPA. I had just taken the LSATs. That was the sort of next plan. But I was heartbroken walking away from skiing and just really devastated. I felt like I needed a year just to regroup. And the only thing I cared about was being warm because I've been chasing winter my whole life. Even during the summers, we would go ski on glaciers. I was like, I just want to be somewhere where I can have 365 days of sunshine in summer. So I went to LA and I started working for this guy and he had this poker game and asked me if I would serve drinks at his poker game. It was this crazy experience where I walked in the room thinking it was going to be a bunch of normal people. And then it was like Ben Affleck and Leo DiCaprio. But beyond that, it was like the owner of one of the biggest investment banks and a politician who's a household name and just all these people that you only hear about. Well, most of us only hear about on television. (laughs) Some of us are related to them, but that's another story. (laughs) You know, I just saw it as this incredible opportunity at a very young age to have this kind of access. And like, I'm such a learner and the information that I was exposed to was priceless. Long story short, I wanted to stay in this room. And then over the next couple of months, I decided I want to own this room. I want to start my own games and and have these people come play in them. And then that set up the next eight years where I ran these games, made millions of dollars, had this incredible network. And you're how old at this time? So when I started my own game, I was 25, 26. Wow. And you moved out to California and did you have friends there or was this, you just went and you connected with people there? Is that how it was? I had one friend there. And just got the job and then just one thing kind of, wow. It was an adventure, but you know, I didn't know anyone in LA and I started these games and. And you don't play poker. You didn't play poker. No, I I knew nothing about poker. I always talk about like what I focused on those first couple of years was just being a nice person, you know, just being like a kind human being and showing up for people and cultivating meaningful relationships and listening to them talk and being curious. And then in those eight years, although it started out as kind of this plan to spend a couple of years doing this and then parlay it into something more legitimate or save, you know, because I was making millions of dollars a year. So like save this money for a couple of years or, you know, build this network and then go back to school, something like that. But I got very caught up and kind of with each year that went by, I started losing more and more of myself and making things that I had never made my gods, my gods, like putting money and power and different types of success before principles. 
it was a slow evolution, but it was an evolution. And I ended up really lost, really sick, and ultimately breaking the law and getting federally indicted and arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents, run-ins with the Italian mob and the Russian mob, just this crazy outcome. So at what point do you think you began to lose your compass? I think when I went to New York City. In LA, I had just been running this one game and making you know a ton of money. And then that game was taken from me in a really unjust, unfair way. And that really rattled me. And so I went to New York and I was just like, this thing's not going to be over until I say it's over. And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) And when you went to New York, again, to back to Trisha's question, did you know people there? And how did you get going there? I didn't really know anyone. I had heard of a couple big games that existed there. I just decided that I was going to figure out how to meet those people and build my own games. And I got creative. I got outside of the box. I was doing deals with the high-end concierge at the hotels in New York City and the major G's at the best restaurants. And I even hired some socialites to go out and recruit. And I just kind of got to people. Yeah, like a true entrepreneur. You had startups. These were startups. Yeah, they were. You were starting this business up and really doing kind of all the right things. And I think we've heard you say it was in the details, right? You didn't let anything go. Like people would know the drinks that they would drink or the food. Right, the personal touch. Yeah, I think it's hugely the personal touch. And then also observing every component and you're breaking down every component of this experience that these people are having and looking for the places that you can improve it, upgrade it, make it special, make them feel special. So many of the poker game runners, it was just about poker and they didn't pay attention to the details. And it ended up human beings have this very complex sensory system. And if you can start to address all of that, you know, the way the room smells, the way it looks, how people are treating you, how fast somebody gets paid, and just kind of observing all these different ways to improve the process, you know, the details matter. They just matter so much. To Trisha's point about being an entrepreneur, to being a startup, you called yourself the owner, the operator, the bank, and the finance arm at one point. This wasn't a small operation going on. (laughs) No, that's kind of how I broke into New York City poker. I realized that so many people would play in these games and then they would get stiffed because the game runners were kind of running a Ponzi scheme in that they would only pay out if they got paid. I had learned a lot about credit extension and debt management in in Los Angeles. And I thought, (laughs) I can probably do this. So I became the bank for these enormous games. You know, I saw someone lose $100 million a night. And so I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Nima, Molly, where were your parents and your brothers? Were they right there with you? (laughs) What were they doing? (laughs) My brothers are insane human beings. And I mean that the best way possible. But Jeremy was the athletic prodigy. And by 19 years old, he was number one in the world in skiing. And he went into two Olympics, being the world champion both times. And then after he retired from the Olympics, he got drafted fifth round to the Philadelphia Eagles. And then (laughs) at like 22, he decided he was going to start this charity granting wishes for senior citizens in our community. And then most recently, he's raised like $80 million for a very successful startup that he runs. My other brother is probably the coolest out of all of us (laughs) because 
a professor at Harvard, and he is a cardiothoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General. And he has this really like specific, obscure specialty that he helps people with those congenital heart defects. And these two were what I was supposed to. <laughs> oh, for achievers. <laughs> yeah. like, okay, and then you're running yeah, a poker I'm game. Like, I got to go on yeah. the obviously. <laughs> so what were they saying while this was all going on? Before? And did they know? So I was giving my parents a very PG-13 analysis, but I know that they didn't really believe me. I mean, I think I bought a Bentley at 26. You don't know what you're doing. You're just kind I'm of an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but my brothers would love it. They would come to Los Angeles and like, mm. you know, I had so much cash and money and I would just put them up at the nicest hotels and take them out at night. And they're like, I don't know what my sister's doing, but this is awesome for us, you know? And at this point, before you went to New York, everything's legal. Everything's legal. Which yeah. shows your brilliance, right? Because you just knew how to do it. It was legal. You weren't breaking any laws. And as you were saying too, building community mm -hmm. and doing all that, but then you go to New York and things kind of changed, right? Yes. Things started to change. And it's such a powerful lesson because I started to relax just a little bit on the things that I cared about. For instance, not letting people play in the game that were like just very blatant gambling addicts or that couldn't afford it. And when I got to New York and I'm like, I'm going to build an empire because I'm mad at LA. I started just caring so much about the bottom line and not about human beings. You know, I was just like as many games as possible. And so that kind of expansion obviously was put on the radar for like, you know, the Italian mob. And I had a very terrifying run in with them. Then also, like I said, I was getting sloppy about my recruitment. There's a couple players, these kind of Russian-American businessmen who people said they were maybe a little bit shady. They were extremely educated and sophisticated, seemed to fit the bill, but it turns out they were running the biggest insurance fraud scheme in New York City history, and they had deep ties to the Russian mob. Were you addicted to drugs and things by this point? Yes. In LA, I ran with a fast crowd for sure, and people drank a lot. But I would say in New York, it stopped being about like going out and having fun on the weekends. And it was like taking pills all the time, pills to stay up, pills to come down. I was really stressed out, max stressed out, and I was drinking a ton. I couldn't function without the substances anymore. Thinking about you as an athlete, more than anybody, athletes know what nutrition means and what you're putting into your body really matters. So that must have been, again, a sign of you kind of moving away from who you were. Absolutely. And then to live that way necessitates deception and kind of living a double life. So the whole hot mess express was <laughs> hot mess getting express. in for a crash. <laughs> so in the movie, they depict that horrible scene of the mobster coming up to your apartment is the movie true? Was the movie pretty much stayed into what happened? Okay. Yeah. So was that the Italian mom? It was, it was so terrible for so many reasons. They approached me months before and kind of did their spiel. We want a piece of the game. And then I turned them down politely and sort of kept evading their calls. And then they sent someone to what I thought was my very secure sort of upper West side apartment. But you come to realize like nothing's really secure 
He came to my apartment. He put a gun in my mouth, which is just like. And this is all through your security detail, right? So your security guy who you really trusted. I really trusted. Yeah. And had him there sort of use your protection actually is the one that kind of allowed them into your. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They paid him off or something. Or owed him a favor. I'm not sure. Yeah. And then the front desk people all got paid off. And that's why that guy could get up to your apartment. At least one of them. He put a gun in my mouth. He beat me up like really bad. And then he said, if you tell anyone, we know where your family lives in Colorado. Then you're like, it's one thing for me to be making these terrible decisions and to be putting my life in danger. But now my family's involved. And also to have that experience, to have that happen to you and not be able to tell a single person. I waited in my apartment for them to call me, you know, because obviously I was expecting their call. Really had no idea what I was going to tell them. Obviously, I can't say no anymore, but I obviously can't say yes either. It was a very dark time. It was a very confusing time. I was obviously drinking a lot. And then I got the New York Times and on the cover, it said 125 arrested in the biggest mob-related takedown in New York City history. So I didn't hear from them again. And yes, recklessly and stupidly, I went on to run games telling myself it was because I had so much money on the street that I needed to collect. And if I stopped running games, then the gamblers wouldn't pay me. And then a couple months later, the feds raided one of my games and seized all my assets. They took every penny that I had ever made. That was game over. That was was enough. And then that's when it sort of all started. Tell us what happened then. You know, I went home to live with my mom in the mountains. I didn't have a bank account. I didn't have a cent. Most of the people that I knew stopped calling, stopped answering calls. I went to rehab. So 28 days or how long did you go for? My family staged an intervention and it was my mom and my aunt. My aunt's been sober for a million years, but then I saw that my brothers were there and that's what killed me. And my uncle, who's been sober for like a million years and one of these hardline sober guys was like, she needs to go to a place that's not nice. Do not send her to promises or whatever. (laughs) So they sent me to this real deal rehab center, like in the middle of Florida. I was like, oh, I'm going to the beach. Great. (laughs) No, Um, so you had to. Just humble pie. You're at rehab having to do some pretty deep work. Learning to take responsibility. Yep. It's almost like you've had now your early life, which was amazing. Then you had this life and now you have a rehab life. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. You know, I was sober for like the next year plus, even though I had nothing, whatever, like I had a great year. I was in the mountains of Colorado. I was feeling good for the first time in my life because when this happened, there was already starting to be tabloid fodder. So it's not like I could hide from it. I had failed spectacularly which was my biggest fear in life. And you know what? I was okay. And beyond being okay, there was a liberation that I felt of like not having to keep up appearances, you know? Was there anyone from your past life during that year that tried to contact you or? My best friend, Allie, stayed in my life. Some of the girls that worked at the game, like stayed in my life. The rest of it was crickets. 
Are those girls okay now? Are they mm -hmm. good? Yeah, two of them played themselves in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? My friend Stephanie played herself and my friend Madison played herself. And Stephanie has like four kids now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, that's so great. That awesome. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, yeah they're all wow. doing well. They're all doing well. They all got out of that life, thank God. You said you went back home. You were feeling healthy. You're feeling good. Maybe you just felt free at that time. I did. I felt free. I felt that my life had been restored in so many ways, like the moral part of it, the familial part of it, the accountable part of it. When you're a drug addict, you have zero accountability yourself or to anyone else. And to feel accountable again, to have discipline again, to know that when you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. And it's not contingent on like how well the substances are working. You know, it's just incredible. And then I decided in that second year, maybe I'll write a book. You know, <laughs> maybe I'll write a book and no one's hiring me at this point. Like <laughs> no one will take my phone call. You know, maybe I'll write a book and go back to school. You felt that freedom and everything. Was there ever any shame that you had to deal with? A hundred percent. I felt an insane amount of shame and humiliation, mostly guilt for what I'd put my family through. I don't think I fully dealt with it until a little bit later down the road. I don't think I had processed it yet. And I certainly hadn't repaired it yet. That comes later. But I think I realized from this like survival mode instinct, I'm already going to have a large uphill climb. Beating myself up is just going to be counterproductive. So the book. So I started writing the book and, you know, all the publishers wanted this big celebrity takedown piece. You know, I kind of said, look, if people have admitted to being part of this game, then their names are on the table, but I'm not telling any stories that are going to like harm anybody's life. And they said, well, what about the people that haven't been in the new? I'm like, you know, that's their story to tell. I'm not going there. So I got a very small book advance and I started writing the book. The book was almost done. And because I was writing this book, there were some smaller production companies in LA kind of interested in it. So I finagled getting a job at one of them, you know, oh. <laughs> of course you did. I was like, you know what? I need more than a book option right now. <laughs> so you moved back to California at this point. I moved back to California. It was wow. about seven days before my 33rd birthday. And I moved into this small, modest apartment. You know, I was like, I'm back. Okay. You're healthy now. I'm healthy. I'm back. I'm back. Yeah. I have a job. And then seven days later, Ugh. middle of the night, 17 FBI agents, semi automatic weapons, high beam flashlights arrested me, put this piece of paper in front of me that I will never forget. Said the United States of America versus Molly Bloom. I guess I didn't really understand how the justice system worked. I didn't understand that they could potentially be building a case. My attorney had reached out to them when they seized my assets. And they were like, if she wants to come in and go on record and tell us how she made this money and the people that she knows, then you know we can have that conversation, which I didn't want to do because by that time I had been doing it illegally. And my lawyer said, okay, well, if you need her, we're here. Let us know. And they said, well, as of right now, she's not of interest. And so two years later to be confronted with this was just like, I felt like a dream. I just don't have any like words to describe how surreal and shocking it was. It just sounds like when you're talking like that was behind you, you had done all the right things. You had done everything you could do and this was behind you and there wasn't supposed to come back. 
is the book written at this point and you've got your job and the book's written because in the movie, the lawyers read the book. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> the book is written, but now of course I'm like, now the story's different. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Really My important ending. detail. <laughs> going to have wow. to probably rewrite this book or, you know, add some material. <laughs> and also wow. my attorney was like, you cannot publish this book right now because it could be used as evidence. So no. And I was like, well, can I publish it ever? And he's like, we'll talk about it, you know? So yeah, so I had a day and a half. My mom had to fly in from Colorado. She had to put her house up to bail me out. You lost your job. I mean, yeah, you didn't, I lost my job. job. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, job ended. Okay. <laughs> Just to be clear. Okay. No more job. So I had a day and a half to get to New York City after I got out of jail because we were being arraigned. And I'm looking at this indictment that I'm in, and there are very serious, terrifying people in this indictment that I have never met in my whole life. The arraignment was nuts. All these like sort of like Russian mobsters and their girlfriends or wives on the other side of the courtroom. And my cute little mom sitting there, like my cute Aww. little Colorado mom. And I'm like, how is this my life? But before the arraignment, I had eight names of lawyers to meet with, you know, to try to find somebody. And everyone I met with, I was like, I don't have any money, but I'm good for it. And they're like, no shot, you know? And then finally, my last meeting, it was like 8 p.m. at night, I met with Jim Walden, who was played by Idris in the movie. He said, I was a federal prosecutor in Brooklyn, and I went after crime families, and I would have never brought forth this indictment. And I don't know how, but I'll convince, because he was at a very big defense firm. He's like, you need help. Everything you do in the next minute, hour, week of your life is going to heavily determine your future. And I know how stacked the deck is against you because I've been on the other side. And I was just, wow. just tears, you know, because like yeah. for the first time, like since this happened, I'm just like, you know, someone is going to help me here. And so, you know, we went to the arraignment and I started working with Jim and I went into his office the next day, you know, like armored up, like with the defense up. And I was like, all right, Walden. What's our strategy and what's our angle, you know? <laughs> and he said something that I'll never forget. He said, integrity will be both our strategy and our angle. And people don't realize when you come into someone's life at a pivotal point like this, where the deck is so stacked against someone and they feel like the worst person in the world, you can be a huge part of their new life. And that's what Jim Walden was for me. And these people that came into my life afterwards. So do you think when you met Jim and you started working with Jim, that might have been another pivot maybe where this whole piece of working on character and integrity, all of that, because I know that you've now dedicated a lot of your life to speaking about those things and the importance of character, integrity. And so I imagine he was a huge piece huge. Of, in that. A huge pivotal part of that. Jim Walden was just a force in my life. And do you keep in touch with him now? Yep, all the time. Yeah. yeah. So Jim kind of says that integrity is going to be both your strategy and your angle. Kind of feels like that's your motto now too. But, but now what should we know? <laughs> We're hanging on every word. <laughs> well, you ask all the right questions. You know, we had to decide what to do. And Jim said, look, you have a really strong case, but minimum two and a half million dollars to fight this case. And clearly... I don't have any of that. We started kind of discussing options and the prosecutors wanted a meeting with us. So we went in to have this 
meeting with these prosecutors, which was also completely surreal. What they really wanted was my cooperation. They thought that I had some information that could help them with high profile indictments. They were interested in Wall Street people, politicians, celebrities. You know, this is the Southern District of New York, for better or worse, a very political office. They said that they weren't interested in what I knew about the Russians or the Italians, but they were very interested in some of these figures that had allegedly played in the game. They wanted all my hard drives. They wanted my full cooperation. They wanted me to wear a wire and try to get information from these people. They said, if you're willing to do this, we'll give you all your money back and we'll make sure that you don't go to jail. That's scary. Very, very scary. So they don't give you very much time to think about it. I think I had like 24 hours. I had to go home and really think about this. And where I had gotten to the first time I got sober very steadfastly was that this was entirely my fault. I had to own that. I had figured out a way to do this thing legally. I got super greedy. I put everybody that played in my games in this bad position. People lost things because of it. I didn't have any Harvey Weinsteins or Jeffrey Epsteins in the game. I would have handed those people over. No problem. Right. I had information on the same level as what I was doing. Some of those types of activities. There weren't these egregious, terrible crimes because the only reason I would be doing it would be to get myself out of trouble. And since this was my fault, I just couldn't do it. I had to stay true to what I believed in, to my moral truth and disregard the consequences to the best of my ability. You could have gone to prison. I was looking at 10 years because of the amount of money that I made. And the the one lead prosecutor was like really upset and kind of yelling at me and stuff. And I just had to get into some trust. Look, if I have to go to jail for a couple of years, I'll be okay. Money comes and goes, whatever, but integrity and morality and courage and all these things, those are the things that I can't live without. I saw that very clearly in my life. You just knew. I just knew. So then what happened? (laughs) (laughs) So then I had to wait to be sentenced. It was really stressful. And I started taking pills again. I wasn't like completely out of control yet, but I was not sober. And you know how that goes. I got sentenced. The judge was pretty lenient or lenient on me and said, I'm really not pleased with what you've done with your life, but I don't think prison is the answer. And I really hope that you try to turn it around, which was another pivotal moment in my life. So you got no time. I got no time. I got probation and some pretty hefty restitution. You know, again, another moment I'll never forget. I went to dinner with my family that night. Jeremy had just been inducted into the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame. (laughs) And and Jordan had just like graduated Harvard again or something. (laughs) (laughs) Again. And I'm like, I'm the family felon. Like how? This This can't be the way the story ends. No matter what. No. (laughs) Here I am. I'm 35 years old. I'm millions of dollars in debt. Legal fees. IRS tax liability on money that the DOJ seized. Don't get me started. Um, Restitution, all the things. I'm a convicted felon. My network is destroyed. It's decimated. And it's all my fault. (laughs) You know. So I decided that I was going to write the book still. The book was published. It wasn't a New York Times bestseller. It did okay. But that didn't matter. Because I was like, how am I ever going to 
make enough money to address this financial liability that I have? How am I going to repair my reputation? Because the tabloids are telling the story about like a Heidi Fleiss-ish character. And I made a lot of mistakes, but I was an entrepreneur. I needed some parts of that story to be told in hopes that I might have a job again someday. The only path forward I saw was to tell this story. And so I took the book to Hollywood, took a lot of meetings and people are like, let me just give you some really good advice. This is a great story. Nobody's going to make this movie because of all the powerful people who will run massive interference on it. Mm -hmm. Did you have an agent or did you, how did you do that? I just, just, just you going in there. (laughs) (laughs) And I just kept at it. And then some people would say yes, but then all of a sudden just drop off the face of the earth. So I just had to like regroup. And I was like, there are these people in Hollywood, this very short list of writers and directors that do not have to play politics because Hollywood needs them more than they need Hollywood. So I made this short list. Aaron Sorkin was on the top of the list for me. (laughs) I love the West Wing. I love Moneyball. I love the social network. I mean, he's my favorite writer. I started trying to get a meeting with Aaron Sorkin. Finally, I met this entertainment attorney, Ken Hertz, who really believed in me and believed in the story and was very well connected. He's like, I can ask Sorkin for a personal favor. So Aaron showed up thinking that it wasn't going to be much of a meeting, but just doing a favor for a friend. I told him my story. He didn't tell me at the time, but he said that he knew he wanted to write it before he was out of the parking garage, like after the meeting. How long was the meeting? 60 minutes. And I was told I did not have a minute longer than that. And if Aaron wasn't interested, I could never contact him again. I bet that could be a whole movie in itself. Like how to prepare for a meeting with Aaron. Oh my God. It was terrifying. God, you could have all these like sub things going on, mini series. And you just sat there and told him your story. I told him my story, hoped and prayed that he would like it. He slow played it for two weeks. I heard nothing from him for two weeks. You know, I was back in Colorado again. And I'm like, well, what a cool opportunity though, you know, to be able to sit with him, right? And then I just got this email from him and it said, I just read your book and it knocked my socks off. And I'm like, what? I'm like, so do you want to write the movie? Like, you know, no game. (laughs) And then the movie all in all took about, three years. And it was really funny because Aaron, when he called me to tell me he was going to write it, he's like, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, is I want to write the movie. The bad news is, is you'll have zero creative control. (laughs) But then I called him back like an hour later and I'm like, but I'm your only source material. Right. (laughs) That's true. You're not dealing with Steve Jobs here, but there's no biographies, right? So was it three years of like working on it? How'd that go? Because I was Aaron's main and only source material. I moved to LA for eight months and worked with Aaron five days a week. It was so incredible. Oh, I bet. And how were you dealing with your addiction at this time? Had you gone back to it or how did you, or where's that? I was medicating and kind of doing what I had done in the past, which is make it all look okay, but living a double life to some degree, not functional without some substances. And then it's progressive, right? And so After that eight-month period, when they went off to Toronto to film the movie, my addiction got really bad. Again, six months before the movie was supposed to come out, you know, I told my parents, I said, I need rehab again. And there was a lot of fear around that decision since this movie's coming out in six months about a girl who was supposed to be brave. I went to rehab that time. And then for the next, I think it was eight months before the movie came out, all I did was get sober. 
and do the work and meditate and read a million books, neuroscience, psychology, Buddhism. I had put my life back together so many times from the outside, but I had never done it thoroughly from the inside. Let me tell you something. If I would have known that it is possible to feel like I feel today, I would have done that so long ago. I just didn't think that there was a solution to the way that I felt inside that wasn't pharmacological. We assume you went to the red carpet and did the movie opening. And what happened after the red carpet? I got sober again. I went to rehab in Colorado and I moved back to Colorado. And I got this sponsor, this woman who has 25 years of sobriety. And she's this little Puerto Rican woman from the Bronx who's like sort of terrifying, but also so (laughs) wonderful. She's got a Tony Montana speed, but she also has a Mother (laughs) Teresa speed and she was perfect for me. I started working with her and I started doing the steps and I started meditating, even though, man, I did not want to, but every book that I had, it just kept coming up as this very valuable practice. And I would get so irritated because I'm like, there's no way I can meditate. You know, my mind is just too all over the place. So I started really small. I started 30 seconds the first day and then I built up to a minute. You know, I kept building up. I used Headspace to learn and started meditating 20 minutes a day, practicing mindfulness, setting alarms for myself to do deep breathing and mindfulness, practicing the principles of a 12-step program, which is a lot of accountability, doing nightly inventories in which I look at how I showed up during the day. Was I being honest? Was I being selfish? Was I being resentful or was being fearful and starting to sort of recalibrate my mind, my spirit, my nervous system, my body, and just incredible things started to happen. Like I've been a lifelong insomniac. And, you know, after five months of meditating, I started to just go to sleep when my head hit the pillow, overcame anxiety. You know, I had some weird fears like flying, which I did all the time, but I was still terrified of it. Didn't know how I was going to get on a plane without Valium or something, you know, breathwork, meditation. That's my go-to. It's so much more effective. I'm such a big believer in meditation. I'm such a big believer in sitting every day and observing whatever comes up without attaching to it. You know, it's discomfort training. It's being able to experience whatever is happening in your life without 911. Got to change this. (laughs) Can't handle this. One of the things in doing research that I heard you say about meditation is that the relentless, you talk about the relentless voice in your head is quieted with meditation, which allows you to move around the world with confidence. And I love that because I feel that to be true as well. One of the main reasons that I drank or took pills is because I had this relentless inner critic. I'll never forget reading The Untethered Soul. And I read this line in The Untethered Soul that you probably are both very familiar with. And it said, you are not the voice in your head. You're the one that hears it. And I was just like, whoa, there is a part of your being that can hear that relentless critic, which means that you have some agency over it. And I think that meditation and mindfulness is exercising that agency. I recently have been going through some infertility stuff, some IVF stuff. So I had to deepen that practice even more. Each thing that comes into my life, each challenge, I have a process now, which is the most incredible, liberating, amazing thing. That's why I feel so compelled to share this because if there's 
a 20 year old girl out there that can resonate with that stuff that can start to incorporate these practices and manage those parts of her mind and skip out on all of the suffering. You know, that's everything to me. You talk a lot about community and how you really have learned that the community really matters and the people you surround yourself with really matter. Can you talk about that a little bit? During the years that I was running those games, I surrounded myself with people who worshipped money, power, prestige above everything else. So it's kind of not surprising that over time, when you allow yourself to be in those circles, and by the way, I should add in worshipped money, prestige, power above all else, and to the degree that they did bad things or were immoral, okay? We're social animals and we're so influenced by our community. I remember going to this AA meeting the first time. You know, there was 80 people in the meeting and it was all walks of life. And I walked in and I'm like, these people don't look like the people that I've been hanging out with. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about this place. And then the meeting started and it was a Jim Walden moment for me, right? Where I heard people sharing about compassion and integrity and doing things for others. And, you know, I was like, this is the community that I want to be a part of because I know that I'm not impervious to influence. And it was the first time I felt really like I was a part of something. Do you regret the hot mess express as you called it? Or do you think you wouldn't be where you are today without it? Both. I have moments where I'm like, if I would have known these things earlier, if I would have known that I could quiet that voice or that I didn't have to suffer from crippling anxiety or depression, if I would have known those things earlier, I think I would have gone in a much different direction. And it's easy sometimes to fantasize about where that would have gone, but that's not what happened. And I kind of already know myself. Even if someone sat down to me and like gave me the most emotional galvanizing conversation about meditation and mindfulness, I would have been like, no, I had had to crash and burn. I'm stubborn and willful and that's how it had to happen. I do regret also like putting my family through what I put them through for sure. Where do you see yourself going from here? I'm never totally certain. (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost done writing a book proposal for my second book, which is really about the things that we've been talking about in the latter part of this conversation, but also the story, but also like a cookbook, you know, how you do these things, like the practical way you do these things. But the thing that I really want to build, like my big long-term vision is that I think that a lot of people want to change. And change would be very good for the world. But a lot of the self-help products that are out there and self-help books kind of fall short of a couple of really integral pieces, such as the social component. And what I see in AA is a community of people and the miracles that happen because of that social community are so powerful. And I think we're in really interesting times here where we can build that online. Like I've developed this first product that kind of welds these two things together, this behavioral product with the social component. And what I'd really like to do is have a studio that creates these kinds of experiences, you know, games and apps 
that leverage a community and leverage some of these protocols that we know work. That's my dream to have the studio. You were mentioning that you're going through IVF. Yeah. So yeah, tell us about your personal life, where you are now okay. in your personal life. Okay. <laughs> I'm an open book. I got married a couple of years ago. And before that, I'd frozen my eggs. And I did that at a really super reputable clinic in Los Angeles in my 30s and really thought, I'm so clever. I froze time on fertility. You know, I'm so clever. And I had this like massive overconfidence around it. And I think part of that is because they've oversold it as an industry, egg freezing technology. What we're seeing now is that it only works like less than 20% of the time. I met Devin. He's a neuroscientist. He's in recovery. We got married and then we went to try to use those eggs and none of them worked. And so by that point, I was 41 and I went to this other clinic and they said they took all my like fertility measures and they were like, it doesn't look good. And then I did something. I was like, all right, I'm going to leverage as much as I can from health, wellness, Eastern medicine, and then also Western medicine protocols. So I found this clinic that their labs are the best in the country because we're growing embryos, right? So that's CCRM with Dr. Schoolcraft and they're actually in Colorado. And then I threw the kitchen sink at it. Chinese herbs, acupuncture, changed my diet, took all the inflammatory foods out, supplements. By the time I went to my suppression check, which the next time I tried to do IVF, because I had done it two times and failed, Dr. Schoolcraft said, I have no idea what happened, but your like AMH, which is the main fertility marker, is three times higher than it was before. I know that we are so aligned with this, that nutrition matters. I've done eight rounds of IVF and we have two good embryos. And so we're going to transfer one of them in June, but it's been quite an adventure. Boy, you've got so many experiences. <laughs> that's amazing. What else do we need to know? <laughs> I think that's it. I think I've told you literally everything about my life. Well, we love Devin. How long did you know each other before you got married? So this is like the best Devin story. So I met Devin when I was a month sober. And he had five years and I met him in a meeting and I heard him speak and he's really good looking and articulate. And he had this like message of integrity. And I was like, I love him. I'm going to marry him. <laughs> wow. And he was like, I'm not going anywhere near you. You have one month of sobriety. <laughs> and he stepped back and would not date me until I had 11 months because that's what you're supposed to do not the guys that I'd been used to hanging out with. Somebody totally governed by their principles. We started dating and, and, then, we <laughs> and then we got married. The rest is history. <laughs> I saw a beautiful picture of your wedding on Instagram. Yeah. You were a beautiful bride. Thank you. It was so nice. Molly, thank you so much for joining well, us. You're amazing. You are just incredible. And you're we just so can't fun. believe we get to know you. Oh, well, I feel the same <laughs> about you too. I love what you're doing. I love your message. I think it's so important. And you are way ahead of the curve. <laughs> You're a little bit older. <laughs> no, that's really? not what I meant. I just mean like, this is like no, all a very hot topic now, but to have the wisdom to recognize these things before they were so mainstream is like 
really incredible. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doral. Be well. To learn more on how to live a co-mindfulness life, visit comindfulnessproject.com.